This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we cover two existential crises rocking the global order. First in France, where President Macron has imposed a deeply unpopular pension reform by resorting to Article 49.3 of the Constitution, meaning he bypassed Parliament. This move has provoked the second largest wave of continuous popular mobilization, arguably since May 68. The second existential crisis is in Israel, where half the population is taken to the streets and shut down their workplaces in a spontaneous protest over Prime Minister Netanyahu's moves to destroy judicial independence and the sacking of his defense minister, who noted that a large chunk of the military have stopped their training in protest. Public outrage on the streets has compelled Netanyahu to put his anti-democratic moves on hold, whereas in France, Macron is intransigent in the face of a united trade union front and ever more people hitting the streets. And in response, he has unleashed unprecedented security measures, meaning more police violence against peaceful demonstrators. We get the big picture with analyses from Sebastian Budgen in France and Yoav Pellin in Israel. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Sebastian Budgen back with us to discuss this amazing crisis in France, where President Mahon has provoked literally the largest wave of popular mobilization, arguably since May 68. Millions have participated in continuous demonstration, days of actions, blockades, and national strikes since about January 19th against Macron's efforts to force his hugely unpopular so-called pension reform into law without a vote by resorting to Article 49.3 of the French Constitution. The use of that article, 49.3, which is, means passing a law without a parliamentary vote, has made the fight over the pension bill a broader fight over the powers of a Emmanuel Macron's government, which lost its majority in last June's parliamentary election. A vote of no confidence or motion of censure was held on March 20th, but ended up nine votes short of an absolute majority. Yet anger over Macron's deeply unpopular pension reform and his anti-democratic way of governing has only made the mobilization stronger. A larger majority of French people opposing raising his pension age from 62 to 64, and the number who back continued protests is actually rising. A fresh day of action called by unions for March 28th, a national strike faced unprecedented security measures, meaning police violence against peaceful demonstrators. We're going to get the big picture and all the details from Sebastian Budgen. So, Sebastian, let me just let the listeners know that you're an editor at Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, and you serve on the board and do so much more for the journal Historical Materialism. We last spoke about French politics at the, at the time of the last French election, and I should just say that you wrote a piece called Shrewd Tortoise, 
on the New Left Reviews blog sidecar. And also just to say that you're in France and participated in this massive protest movement. So let's begin with an overview of the crisis Macron has provoked, the scope of the opposition, the wave of strikes and other actions, literally like who's in the streets, who is on strike, who isn't, that sort of thing. Okay, so as you say, uh, Susie, this uh, struggle against the pension reforms has been going on now for several months since January. Uh, you have to put this in the long perspective. There's scarcely a government goes by in France without attempts to uh, reform the pension system. And Macron's reform, although it's particularly unpopular, is only the latest version. Sarkozy, for example, in 2010, reformed the pension system as well, as did Chirac. So the reform that he's pushed through, or he's trying to push through, raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. It's very different from the uh, reform that he proposed just before the COVID lockdown. He was proposing another pension reform, which was also relatively unpopular, but it did attract some of the people from the centre-left, particularly the centre-left trade union, the CFDT, were interested in it because it, it seemed to involve a more universal change with some apparently fairer aspects, whereas this is really a reform that reduces itself to a fairly straightforward measure of making everybody work for two years longer. And obviously this hits people in harder jobs, uh, manual workers, for example, or people who work uh, more by hand and by use of their body than by their than by other methods. It hits them harder. It hits women harder because they often have shorter working lives and therefore fewer annuities. And it's a reform that has been rejected by the entirety. Uh, well, about 75% of the French population rejects it, about 90% of those who are economically active. The only groups that really support this reform are the residual uh, supporters of Macron. So on one side, the managerial and professional class is the higher end of that. And very ironically, the retirees themselves, who are a core part of his constituency. So it's a proposed reform that has um, created enormous amount of controversy, and it has created something which is quite unprecedented for the recent period, which is a united trade union front going all the way from the moderate left CFDT, or even the Catholic CFTC, all the way through to the CGT and the Solidaire Trading Federation. So it's a reform that has created, uh, has provoked massive demonstrations, probably some of the biggest demonstrations in France, including if we take into account the massive demonstrations there were in 1995, which was the big turning point of the mm. rebellion against neoliberalism in France. And up until the use of the Article 49.3, these have largely been very peaceful, well-disciplined demonstrations. Um, what's very interesting about them as well is that they're not just demonstrations that take place in the big cities like Paris, Lyon, Toulouse, etc. But everybody has remarked upon the fact that in small and medium towns in France, there's been a very strong mobilization. You know, in some towns where, you know, they only have 7,000, 8,000 population, you have demonstrations of two, three, four thousand people, which is enormous. So it's a very profound rejection of this reform, which reflects lots of things that we can get onto later. It has been accompanied by some strike action, some blockades, some occupations, 
Strike action has been not as strong as some previous movements for reasons we could maybe discuss. But there are some key sectors who have been very important, particularly thing that everybody in the foreign press is talking about, the trash collectors, so big piles of rubbish piling up in Paris's streets, the refinery workers, so that's you know obviously hitting the key uh, aspect of the petrol pumps, and some other sectors. But we're not talking about a general strike or even a mass strike at this moment. We're talking about very large demonstrations with some sectors that have been involved in strikes. And we're also talking about increasing youth components. Again, it's not a massive involvement of university students as, for example, in 2006, when there was the very successful demonstrations against the employment law that was one of the big successes of the French social movement in the recent period. They managed to get that law basically overturned, and that involved enormous uh, numbers of high school and university students in the movement. But we are seeing many more young people involved in the demonstrations, including parallel fashion, a whole series of spontaneous demonstrations that took place particularly after the use of the Article 49.3 and Macron's despicable and amazing performance on TV uh, to try and justify himself. So we're seeing lots of young people coming out on the streets, milling around, kind of demonstrating, particularly in the evenings. This particularly happened, for for example, Place de la Concorde, where the um, King Louis XVI had his head cut off, if you remember, and other parts of Paris, playing cat and mouse with the police. So it's a broad and it's a deep movement, but it's not a movement I would characterize yet, at least as something, you know, the cliche talk about France is always May 68. This is not a mass strike of millions of workers. This is not occupations of factories or workplaces on, on that sort of scale. Well, let's go back right over that. That was going to be one of my questions. But but one thing just to say is that, you know, France is being made to be seen, I guess, by the international press here and probably in Britain and elsewhere as an outlier on this question, that the reporting I would have expected to be more positive, but in, in fact says, you know, okay, so you know, French workers are very privileged that, you know, they can retire at 62, whereas almost everywhere else the age is 65, 66, 67. So what's the big deal? And in fact, I've seen, you know, it just seems that the reporting is so much more pro-Macron, even though he doesn't enjoy that kind of support in France. But, you know, before we get into one of the questions that I want to ask you about, you know, the French left, you just said a couple of things that struck me. One, that this is a united trade union action, and you haven't seen that kind of coming together under the leadership, presumably, of the trade union movement, making giving this a character that is very different than, let's say, protest movements and social movements elsewhere, as we saw in 2019 against austerity, gigantic demonstrations around the globe, but not with workers, workers' movement, labor movement, leadership, and broad unity. So let's go into that a little bit. And I was going to ask you, you've just said it hasn't reached the level of May 68, but do you see this protest movement as the most important social movement in recent years, say, more consequential than the Gilets Jaunes, Yellow Vest, which was in 2018, I think, and the Nuit Debout, which it was 2016, I believe, and we talked about both of them. So 
even if it hasn't reached the level of May 68, do you see it as more akin to the protest movement and revolutionary moment of May 68? And if so, why or why not? I mean, I don't think it's a revolutionary moment because a revolutionary moment is characterized by uh, at least the elements of an alternative source of power in a classical revolution at workers' councils or some kind of alternative source of power. But yeah, I mean, I think it is it is an extremely important moment uh, movement. I wouldn't say it's more important than the Gilets Jaunes movement because the Gilets Jaunes was a very different type of movement. It was, and it was a different sociology as well. I mean, the Gilets Jaunes movement was a plebeian movement, which involved also members of the lower middle class, uh, the self-employed, and it was a much more protean movement. This is a movement which has a very single and quite modest demand in a sense, at least officially, which is that Macron simply retreats on this pension reform law. But it is a movement which has put the trade unions, which have been written off uh, largely in, in France, back at the centre of political life. And yes, the, the unity between the trade unions, which has its problems, it has its downside as well, which maybe we can get onto, but it is a big deal. It is very, very significant. Previous governments and Macron himself, indeed, in 2019, were very successful at dividing the trade union movement, picking off the more moderate elements from the more militant elements. Very surprisingly, Macron hasn't done this with this case, and therefore he's faced with this much more united kind of reaction. You know, I, I, I think a lot is still up in the air. It depends how successful the movement is. You know, France is not unknown for big social movements, but they don't all succeed. Some of them, many of them are defeated. How those defeats also play out is important. You know, are those defeats crushing defeats or are they defeats that people learn from is, is an important question. But, you know, the big issue, the big difference between France and the UK, for example, is there's not been uh, a defeat on the scale of the minor strike that there was in Britain, which mm. completely was a political defeat for the labor movement as a whole on a, on a massive scale. So, yeah, I, I would say this, this is a movement of the same importance as, let's say, 1995, which, again, was a defensive mm. movement against social security reforms and so on. But it was a very uh, powerful movement. How this And one, if I could just interject, I remember saying no to the American way. We're not going to borrow the American model. And then, of course, we saw what happened. But go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I just think a lot depends on what how things play out. A lot of things are up in the air, both at the government and in terms of the movement. You know, I, I think it's very important, for example, this, as I mentioned, this involvement of young people, students, high school students and others in the movement. And if that reaches a critical mass, then you could see, as as has happened in France's history, you could see it taking on a much more a much more militant and more generalist aspect, because uh, many of the young people who are demonstrating are not just demonstrating about or even primarily about now the pension reforms, but about the anti-democratic and authoritarian way that the Macron government has acted, and also about, you know, the place of work in in people's lives. And why should, just because, you know, life expectancy is getting longer and retirees in France live better off than many, in many other countries, why should that mean that you should work until you drop? Shouldn't that mean the opposite, that you should work so that you can then have a a decent retirement with a decent level of health and so on. So, you know, I think uh, those kinds of things are up in the air, whether that these extra elements can give a different dynamic and dimension to the movement or not, or whether it will remain largely a single issue and defensive movement. 
you know, you raise so many interesting questions, and I wanted to ask you to discuss, you know, I guess maybe let's talk about it in two different levels. First is what's going on in the parliament, because it was sort of shocking, I guess, to observers that they weren't able to get through a motion of censure or vote of no confidence, and they lost by, I guess, just nine votes. So I'd like you to speak to that on what happened. Was there not enough time to organize that opposition? Or does the parliament reflect the sort of political sentiment in the streets? Because it seems like it doesn't. So that one, and then then I'd like to go into the issue of uh, that you've just been raising and why this crisis is not yet created those organs of self-government or alternative forms and whether or not that gives us some idea of the lack of cloud of left political parties, et cetera. But let's start with what happened in Parliament. Well, we have to remember, so Macron does not have a majority uh, uh, in the National Assembly. There are two blocs that oppose him. There's the far-right bloc of the Rassemblement National, uh, which has the largest number of deputies for a single party in, in the National Assembly, led by Marine Le Pen, which is opposing the pension reforms. Uh, and then you have the NUPES, which is an alliance of several left parties, the key one being La France Insoumise, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and that has the biggest group in the parliament after Macron. Uh, you remember also that Macron's uh, political strategy initially in 2017 to get into power was to soak up as many of the votes he could of the centre-left, the people who used to vote for the Socialist Party. Now his strategy, and for several years this has been more and more obvious, is to try and soak up as many of the votes as possible of the centre-right, so-called centre-right. It's actually extremely right-wing, but let's call it the centre-right, Les Républicains. Uh, But is this uh, also, sorry, just one second. When you say centre-right, you mean traditional centre-right, not those who went for Le Pen? Yeah, that's right, not the far Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the strategy in the parliament has been to try and rely on the votes. They can get votes laws through if they can get 100% support from the group Les Républicains, the the right, the so-called centre-right bloc. And so up to the last moment, they were wondering whether they could get the vote through that way. It seemed risky. They could have done it. It would have been a democratic thing to do, to put the law (laughs) to a vote and, and lose it and just accept that they'd lost the vote. But it seemed increasingly obvious to them that the right wing bloc was splintering. There were people on in the right party who were against the pension reforms, or at least in the form that it was taking, and they risked losing that vote. So they decided to go for this extremely under-democratic emergency measure, of 49.3, which basically allows them to, to avoid going to a vote, but then they had to face a no-confidence vote in the parliament, and that they only uh, managed to survive by the skin of their teeth, again, with the support of the right-wing bloc, apart from a few who didn't vote with the right-wing bloc. So it's actually a very close vote, nine votes. It shows the weakness of the Macronist project, the shallowness of its roots. Of course, the parliament doesn't perfectly represent the uh, mood in the country. Uh, and, you know, the right-wing, the centre-right are very much, you know, most of them are very much in favour of the pension reforms because it fits with their neoliberal programme, but not enough of them were for them to be counted on 100%. So that's that's what's going on in the parliament. Then they won the uh, no confidence vote. And now the law is being considered by the Constitutional Council, which could still cancel the law on the basis that, you know, it wasn't just this 49.3 that they used at the end of the process. There were a whole number of 
mechanisms that they use to try and make the debate as short as possible, to try and um, uh, basically ram this thing through as a kind of uh, packaged as part of another bill. So, so this quite- means, I'm sorry, just just to explain, because by using 49.3, he bypasses the parliament, but you're talking about now using the parliament to get some form of legitimacy for what he's doing? No, no. The The next stage is that the law is uh, now with the Constitutional Council, uh, mm. which is cons- consists of you know previous prime ministers and, and various other worthies. They may find that because of the way that the law was pushed, ran through, they may decide that the law is unconstitutional or parts of it are unconstitutional, in which case it'll have to be either cancelled or redebated and so on. There's also a proposal on the table for a referendum on the question, which is mm. pushed by, by the left. You know, the, the, the process in, in the parliament has been quite very turbulent. The, the left put up a lot of uh, thousands and thousands of amendments to try and, you know, slow the process down and put spokes in the government's wheels. But ultimately, they were able to use this 49.3 clause in the constitution, which was introduced by de Gaulle when the Fifth Republic set up, basically as a way of bypassing the party's uh, structures and the National Assembly. You know, that's really important and to get that clarification and try to understand what could happen and whether or not, depending on how it goes, uh, there could be another motion and even the possibility of Macron falling, his government falling rather. But it seems like he's incredibly desperate. And one of the things that he claimed several days ago was that France and Soumise is using this moment to delegitimize French institutions. And I wondered if you could just give our listeners a kind of sense of how important France Insoumis is in this period. I saw another report, and I can't remember where, that Mélenchon was booed off the stage when he was speaking to the crowd. So has it gained strength? And and what about Mélenchon? Is he still the sort of indisputed leader uh, or is his standing diminished? Uh, you know, what about, you know, what about those politics, his politics and the politics of the left? Yeah. The first thing that you have to remember is that in France, there's a very strong tradition uh, which goes back to the CGT's original founding Congress in the beginning of the 20th century, the the Congress of Amiens, where the trade unions and political parties are are separated in a very sharp way. And the trade unions defend their autonomy and separation from political parties very ferociously. So... uh, you have on the one side what's going on in terms of the, the trade union mobilization. On the other side, you have what's going on on the political uh, party level. And it's true that some of the trade union leaders criticized Mélenchon and La France Insoumise for, um, I mean, I think unjustifiably, but criticized them for the way that they were carrying out their kind of sabotage techniques in the National Assembly to try and slow the process of the legislative process down. As we discussed before, you know, in the previous discussion, La France Insoumise did very well and basically Mm. hegemonizes the French left now after the legislative elections. But it is true that the left, all the parties of the left have been through a very turbulent period over the last few months uh, with various internal crises and arguments between them, which means that, you know, they've lost some of the momentum and capital that they had just after the legislative elections. Mélenchon is still the primus inter pares leader of the, um, well, more than that, of La France Insoumise. He's not in the National Assembly anymore. He set up a, a foundation for research and training of cadres and so on called L'Institut La Boétie. 
which he's uh, the, the 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 key key person behind, but he still plays a very important role even on a day to day level within you know the tactics that are discussed by La France Insoumise um, deputies. And it's I think it's pretty likely that unless you know something terrible happens to him in terms of his health, he will stand again for the next presidential elections if he's in good enough shape for it. So there is this contradiction, which is that, you know, you have a, a strong social movement and yet you have a political left, which is somewhat discombobulated in relation to, you know, where it was just after the uh, legislative elections. You have a situation of a kind of disparity between the two. But, you know, La France Assoumise has been very active, including on the ground in terms of mobilizing people for the demonstrations and also for other demonstrations. You probably saw there was an extremely large ecological demonstration on the weekend mm. that was faced by extreme police violence two comrades are you know in a coma and between life and death at the moment and la france assoumise was present to that and supported that and, and so on so you know it's it's not a, a straight split in terms of the streets and the parliament there is some kind of interaction there but it's important to recognize that you know Mélenchon it doesn't have the same preeminence when it's a social movement as when it's an electoral campaign uh, or with a presidential campaign or a legislative campaign. Well, this is really important, and I'm glad you've gone over that because it helps us understand it. But also the fact that the left political parties are in disarray is is pretty generalized, although France has usually got its act together more than, let's say, other countries. But I wanted to ask you if, if this is the same for Le Pen. And is her standing diminished or strengthened? And what role, let's say, that, or what position does she take? I should just say for the listeners, as you said in earlier interviews that we've had, this she represents this sort of populism that we've seen elsewhere that's anti-immigrant, pro-worker. But does that extend to the kind of opposition, let's say, to any legislation that would make it harder for workers, as in this proposal for, for pension reform? Yeah, so, you know, Le Pen and the Rassemblement National, which is the new name for the, the Front National, um, has been following a twin track strategy. On the one hand, they want to keep their working class base. Uh, so that means that they uh, do oppose the pension reforms and they do oppose some other anti-social measures that the government puts through. On the other hand, they also following the second track, which is to try to appear as much as possible as the alternative government, an alternative government in waiting, as it were, which means playing up the aspect of respectability, mm. of stability, of order. For example, they criticise a lot La France Insoumise for uh, its role, it, you know, its inflammatory rhetoric or its role it played in, in trying to undermine the legislative process in the in National Assembly. And so obviously they're not going to go out on the streets. I mean, they'd be chucked off most of demonstrations, chased away mm. if they tried, but they're not going to actively support the social movements, even though they want to sort of give an, a, a nod and a wink that they're generally favourable to it. So, you know, a, a recent poll has shown that Rassemblement National is, is a beneficiary of this movement, that their poll rating has risen by 6%, which, you know, is not that surprising, given that they have this strong popular base and the kinds of people who generally are strong supporters or voters for them are the less organised, the less militant, the less connected to trade union sections of the of the working class who are very opposed themselves to these pension reforms but don't necessarily have the confidence or desire to engage in collective action themselves and so they 
they're fueled more by resentment and anger and fury at the system as a whole, rather than any kind of positive uh, project, unless it's a kind of racist project. So, yeah, Le Pen is, is playing this careful game of, on the one hand, positioning herself as, as Macron's main opponent, but on the other hand, trying to appear as, as respectable to right-wing voters who would traditionally have been a little bit suspicious of her, partly for class reasons, partly for concern about uh, her being too extreme and so on. So there is a real issue here about, you know, Macron could dissolve the parliament and call for new legislative elections. If he does that, the Rassemblement National would get an even bigger group in the parliament than it has now. And I hope the left would also have a bigger group. Uh, so he doesn't have a lot to gain out of that. His majority could actually shrink. But, you know, it is a sign that his hesitancy over that, that, that and, you know, lots of people are saying that he's creating the basis socially and politically for a win for Le Pen in, in, in 2027. And obviously, if in, in the absence of a, of a strong left response, that is definitely true. He's very cocky, but that seems like an incredibly risky move, given, you know, his diminished stature, at least, you know, and the growing social movement that his actions have provoked. But I find that really interesting, Sebastian, what you had to say about the working class support for Le Pen, which is basically the left behinds, what we would have called lumpen in many cases, not classically lumpen, but those who've been thrown out of work by changes and who then have blamed immigrants, you know, and become more racist. But we did see early on that a lot of the Communist Party base voted for Le Pen. So that I'm glad to see that. Well, on the way, I guess I'm, it's contradictory because you said that her party support has gained. But on the other hand, they're not necessarily supporting this social movement. And I guess that calls into question this, you know, notion that we all have about France's social solidarity. And when there's strikes, they are supported. When there are movements in the streets, they are supported no matter what discomfort they provoke, trash in the streets and other sorts of things. And then, you know, I guess so maybe you could just sort of end with this sort of picture that we have about French society and their propensity to gather solidarity and, and win on strikes and things like that. Yeah, um, just one point. I, it's not true that the communist base has supported uh, Le Pen. It's true that the far right has won in areas where the left socialist party and in some cases communist party used to be strong. It's mainly mm. voters in those cases are not previous communist party voters. They're usually people who used to vote for the right. There's always been a right-wing working-class vote in, in France or people who abstained previously. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, French political culture, because of the history, means that there is a real legitimacy to mass protest, including if it takes a violent form against property, at least. You know, burning bus shelters and bins is not considered to be the end of the world, as it might be in other European, northern European countries. And lots of people are very happy, I think, to see, most people are very happy to see the protests, especially since, as I say, you know, they exist at all levels of French society, including very small towns and so on. But it is true as well that, you know, French society has been, there's been deindustrialization, there's, you know, 30 years of neoliberal policies, there have been right-wing discourses coming from all sections of the French political establishment, including the left on uh, immigration as a problem. There were the terrorist attacks and so on. All of those things have coagulated to create a counter tendency to that tendency of collectivity, which tends towards, you know, individualism, towards resentment, and in some cases, you know, outright sort of hatred of, of other groups. So those are two tendencies that are in constant 
conflict sometimes and combine in, so, in other cases. You know, you can't say that French society is entirely characterized by solidarity and collectivism, nor can you say it's yet entirely characterized by racism and individualism. Both exist simultaneously and are in tension with each other. Obviously, moments like the present where you have these kind of mass movements give a chance for the sort of the more positive aspects to express themselves and, and perhaps consolidate themselves, especially amongst younger people. But if we were to lose this struggle in a bad way, then it's quite possible that the far right will pick up all of the fruits, the bitter fruits of that defeat. But I mean, that's the case really, whenever you have a, a big social conflict, nothing determines in advance who's going to benefit from it. I'm going to ask you one more question based on all of that, Sebastian, and that is, given that I think you said 90% of the workers are opposed to this pension reform, and you know more than half of the population actively is opposed to it, that's all obviously including supporters of Le Pen who oppose this pension reform. And as you've also said, that the character of the protests has gone beyond just the pension reform, but also the way that Macron has governed the anti-democratic moves by resorting to 49.3. So I guess my question is, what next? You just raised the specter of what could happen with defeat, but do you think that, that Macron's going to back down on this uh, pension law or just risk that he can somehow ride it out? What do you think is going to happen? And do you see a possibility of his government falling as a result? Well, he has a backup plan, which is to change prime minister. I mean, he can he can just get rid of the prime minister and, and put somebody else, although who that would be. She's supposed to be a centre-left person that was trying to be a concession to the left electorate, and that hasn't worked out very well. He's between a rock and a hard place, Macron, because he's chosen a very confrontational position from the start. In a sense, that's because he's a, a lame duck president, because he can't stand again in 2027, mm. and he doesn't have a majority in the parliament. So it, it puts him in a very difficult position. If he were to back down, it, it would mean that it would be very difficult for him to do anything else for the rest of his term. And of mm. course, the, the people within his own camp who want to succeed him 2027 would be stabbing each other in the back and differentiating themselves and so on. And the very solidity of the Macron parliamentary group would start disintegrating. So that that's a problem for him. But at the same time, if he doesn't back down, he's going to have a very unpleasant and lonely next few years because he's <laughs> going to have been rejected by 75% of the French population and you know 90% of the economically active French population. He can't rely only on retirees and the highest levels of the managerial and professional classes. I mean, that's just not enough. It's not sufficient base to do anything, really. So it's going to be very, very difficult for him, whatever choice he makes. Most intelligent choice would be to try and do what he should have done from the beginning, from his perspective, which is to try and split the unions and reach out to the more moderate elements. They've been invited to the to meet the prime minister next week. So, you know, perhaps that's part of the beginning of that kind of strategy. Perhaps he'll get a kind of joker card, which will be the constitutional council will say this law is unconstitutional. And he can say, well, you know, I tried, but I couldn't do it. Or perhaps the level of the struggle will intensify such that people, including the employers, will start screaming at him to, for God's sake, you know, drop this fetish of the pension reform law. We didn't even want it that much in the first place. And you're making life for the rest of us very difficult. I mean, those options all exist on the table. 
But as I say, he's put himself in a very difficult position. He got out of the yellow vest protest with this kind of fake consultation. He could try that again. But, you know, the level of hatred for him now is extremely high. His TV interview was absolute disaster. He came across as this sneering, smirking, arrogant little twit. Um, <laughs> which he is, yes. Which he is. But, you know, he could have hidden it better, to be honest, you know, who characterized the protesters as seditionaries. And, you know, he was talking about how the, gra- the crowd doesn't uh, govern and all this kind of stuff. Very contemptuous discourse. So... It's a tough call for him, I would say. But yeah, he could change prime minister and he could also try and dissolve the parliament. But as I said, if he does that, I don't see a better result for him than the present one. Well, as always, Sebastian, thank you so much for that analysis and overview. Incredibly useful. And I should just tell the listeners that we're going to do a sort of overtime. And if you want to hear the extended interview with Sebastian, it'll be on Jacobin Radio in days to come. Sebastian Budgen is editor for Verso Books, a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, and he serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism. He analyzed French politics most recently and probably should update it now in the New Left Review blog called Sidecar. The title of his intervention there is called Shrewd Tortoise, and Sebastian is talking to us from France. Sebastian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Yoav Pellet back with us, and we're going to be discussing the crisis in Israel. Half of Israel took to the streets and shut down their workplaces on Monday, March 27th, in a spontaneous protest of Prime Minister Netanyahu's firing of his defense minister on Sunday. The defense minister was fired for noting that Netanyahu's impending destruction of judicial independence was causing a large chunk of the nation's military to go AWOL. That means they're stopping their training, as our guest Yoav will explain, in protest. The uproar at his sacking compelled Netanyahu to put his court-crushing offensive on temporary hold, and now there's some negotiations underway. But clearly, the population did not buy Netanyahu's argument, probably borrowed from the example of Viktor Orban in Hungary, that diminishing the judiciary strengthened democracy. I have to kind of chuckle there. Unlike other demonstrations that have filled Israel's streets in recent weeks, this one wasn't pre-planned. Israel's response to the firing, which made clear Netanyahu's determination to derail the court regardless of consequences, even to national security, was spontaneous. New polling has shown that roughly two-thirds of Israelis oppose the firing and that a majority now favors forming a new government composed of the many opposition parties. Netanyahu was compelled by the public outrage to put his reforms on hold and now to begin negotiations until the Knesset returns from a several-week recess, and he's had to pacify the far-right parties to which he's beholden for his parliamentary majority. So that means he's promised, and we'll hear from Yoav on this, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who heads the far-right party of Palestinian-hating 
settlers that he could establish and run a national guard. I think that's a first for Israel. And the question is whether they're just official Jewish brown shirts in order to enforce domestic tranquility. We're really fortunate to have Yoav back with us to give the bigger picture of the divisions and crises of Israeli politics. So Yoav, let me welcome you and just introduce you to the listenership. Yoav Pellin is a professor emeritus of political science at Tel Aviv University. He is co-author with Orit Herman Pellet of The Religionization of Israeli Society. That came out in 2019 by Rutledge. He's co-editor with John Ehrenberg of Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives on Statehood. And his book co-authored with Gershon Shafir, Being Israeli, the Dynamics of Multiple Citizenship, won the 2002 Albert Hurani Award given by the Middle East Studies Association in North America for the best book in Middle East Studies published that year. Yoav specializes in inter-ethnic relations and citizenship in Israel, and he's now writing on the rise of populism. So welcome with all of that, Yoav. Let's begin with an overview from you on the anti-court coup, I guess you could call it, of Netanyahu and the mobilization it sparked. I understand that you were in the streets, so I'd like to uh, get your sense of these giant protests, the anger against Netanyahu's anti-democratic moves, and then what these protests represent. Okay, well, first of all, it's, it's important to note that uh, the protests and the opposition to Bibi's moves are uh, by half of the people. It's not all the people, it's half of the people, and the other half supports it. So what you really have here is a clash between two classes. And since in Israel there is a great proximity between class and ethnicity, inter-Jewish ethnicity, you really have a, a conflict, a clash between uh, mostly Ashkenazi, middle and upper middle class, relatively secular, and the mostly Mizrahi, lower middle and working class, more religious. Yesterday or last night, this really uh, came to violence. Until now, there was no violence between the two camps. Last night, there was already violence. And this violence could escalate. Was this violence, by the way, from the police, or was it between the sectors of the society? It's not between. It's only one sector attacking the other sector, with the police trying to stop it. It's hard to tell how seriously they try to stop it. There's a difference, between, like in every other aspect, there's a difference between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The police in Tel Aviv is much more liberal. That's why Bengvir fired the chief of police in Tel Aviv. This firing was halted by the government's legal counsel, which is sort of like the attorney general in the U.S., as something that he had no authority to do. But, you know, how these things go at the end, this man will probably leave his position in the end. In Jerusalem, it's something else. The chief there is much, much more aggressive towards these demonstrations. Of course, he had to suffer for a very, very long time demonstrations in front of Netanyahu's official residence, the so-called the Balfour demonstrations that have been going on for a long time, and the police had to uh, tackle that for a long time. So I guess his patience is already pretty short. 
you know, before we go into a deeper understanding of the divisions in the society and why, for example, the Mizrahi middle class and working class support the right, I, I want to hear all of that. Can you just let our listeners know how important it was that some of the military, as opposed to what Netanyahu is doing and have taken action after he fired the defense minister? Well, I think the, the military is really the, the ace here. When we talk about the military, it's, it's very important to note. We're talking about reservists. We're not talking about the regular military yet. Maybe it will come to that. But so far, we talk about reservists. And we talk about reservists in such units that they are really volunteering their reserves service now. Most importantly, these are fighter pilots. Fighter pilots have to fly, have to train every week. Otherwise, they lose their uh, capacity. So they, or many, many of them, said they were not going to come to these weekly flights under a non-democratic government. In other words, if this legislation is not altered. So I think this was the really the most important consideration. And the defense minister, who's, he was a right-winger, make no mistake about it, the right-winger, but he saw what's happening under him in the military, and he said that because the military is basically crumbling as a result of that, because the Israeli military is largely a reserve force, the standing element of it is small. So he was very much concerned. So he said uh, we have to stop, to not stop, but pause or halt this legislation because I'm, I'm losing the military from under my feet. And that's why Netanyahu fired him. But by the way, he, he hasn't fired him yet. He just said he was firing him. He never sent him the firing letter. So, so far, he's still the defense minister. And will he stay no matter what, unless he's fired? Yeah, he will stay, sure, of course, unless well, he fires him. Wow. I mean, this is pretty incredible that the military, or as you say, largely reservist military is opposed. And we've also seen various IDF and other officers commenting, you know, in the international press that they're opposed to these moves. And I think maybe, again, just before we go into the divisions within Israeli society, you should say something about what it is that Netanyahu was trying to do in curbing the power of the judiciary. You and I have spoken over the last, I guess, almost two years, every time Israel has had a new election. And Netanyahu is kind of like the supreme politician who's always very deft at maneuvering and getting his way. But as we said in the last time, he's under indictment. That indictment hasn't gone away. And I guess immune from being indicted while he's in office, you can let us know if that's the case. But how much of this curbing of the judiciary's power has to do with his own personal legal battles? It has everything to do with it. As everything, as the law stands now, he's not immune from anything. And he's not just indicted. There is a trial. It's going on. It's been going on for a long time. It's going on surprisingly slowly. Now, you, anybody can guess why it's going so slowly, but it's going on. Now, there are several ways in which Netanyahu can get out of it. All of them require legislation. And if this legislation can be reviewed by the High Court of Justice, which is the Supreme Court functioning as the, high, as the constitutional court, 
then this legislation can be cancelled by the court. That's why he needs two things he needs to do. I mean, one would be enough, but to make sure he needs two things. He needs a nevertheless clause saying that if the <laughs> Supreme Court strikes down a law, the Knesset can reenact it with a majority of just 61 members, which is what the government has by definition out of 120, and also control over the composition of the Supreme Court. This is the current fight. This is the first item on the agenda. Reshape, reconstruct the committee that selects the judges, all judges, including Supreme Court justices, so that the government, the executive branch, will have control over this committee, which it doesn't have now. And then he can nominate justices that, that will not strike down the law that, that gets him out of his trial. So the trial is really the most important political fact and has been for a long time. And how does that go down in Israeli society? I mean, obviously he was elected, but he was elected by creating a coalition with the far right, giving the small parties of the far right much more power than they otherwise would have. But as you're describing it, he has to get legislation to change the very nature of Israeli democracy by curbing the judiciary. And as you just said, changing the way that judges are appointed. Now, obviously, we've seen a very similar thing in the United States, although they didn't have to change any laws. It was just once the Republicans were in power, they used basically the Senate became nothing more than a, you know, an approval for various judges all up and down to get a lot of conservative, young conservatives into important judicial positions. And by the way, they all the time bring this argument. Look at the United States. In the United States, the president appoints all federal judges. So what's wrong with doing that? What's wrong with that? We're not even going that far. In their plan, there will be still uh, Supreme Court justices in that committee, but power will be with the political element in the committee. So they, they will be able to do whatever they want. You know, I'm just thinking about how cynical it is, given that this is really about Netanyahu's own personal legal situation to prevent him from going to jail, even though, as you said, this trial is going on and it's extremely slow. But Netanyahu, and we'll go into, I guess, right after this, the nature of the divisions in the society. And we also want to hear more about Ben Gvir and, and what his party represents and how much power he holds and whether or not Netanyahu is doing most of the things he's doing is to hold on to the power of his coalition. Some of the, the international press is saying he's lost it. He used to be a much a more astute politician, and now it's just, you know, narrowed down to his own personal situation, sort of like Trump. Well, that's because of the trial. Now, there is another element here which is his family. I mean, his wife and his son. You know, I don't want to get a defamation uh, suit, so I will not characterize <laughs> it the way they are freely characterized in, in the media here. But uh, they are apparently, everybody says, a very, very powerful influence on him, and they push him in the direction of being more and more, more extreme. So the combination of the trial and the family pressure apparently made him, uh, Thomas Friedman even wrote, he's not acting acting rationally, right? Yeah, he did. That was really shocking. The two factors, apparently, that, that make him behave like that. 
And it's also been extremely important in terms of support of American Jews who are now largely opposed to what um, even conservative ones, because they've been much more conservative here in supporting whatever Israel does or whatever Netanyahu does. And now, you know, you got opposition even from Sheldon Adelson's widow, which, you know, that's that's quite amazing, one would think. But maybe this would be the sort of opportunity you have to talk about the divisions and those who support what Netanyahu is doing and how this division, as you said, is between a conflict between two classes, one, the Ashkenazi secular uh, middle and upper classes, I guess, professionals, others, and then the Mizrahi and, and working class. Maybe, could you begin to talk about that? And the, you know, in our last discussion, I think we talked about your book, The Religionization of Israeli Society. So that's sort of the opening let's, for your analysis here. Let's hear it. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say that this is, of course, a sociological generalization. I mean, you mm. will find many Mizrahim in, on the liberal, in the liberal camp and many Ashkenazim in the, let's call them the anti-liberal camp. But overall, if you look at the substantial numbers, then what you just said is, is correct. It, you have the more or less secular, as, as you know, we argue in our book that there's no such thing as secular Jews in Israel. So let's <laughs> yeah. say they are more or less secular Ashkenazi middle and upper class as against the more or less religious Mizrahi middle class and working class. This is the clash. In, in my work on populism, I, I argue that the second camp, the more religious, more Mizrahi camp, are the the audience or the constituency of the populist political forces, they are largely responsible for this government that we now have being in, in place. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that motivates, besides religion, I guess, the uh, support for the right on the part of uh, working and, I guess, lower middle classes or middle classes? Because that, from what I understand, reading your work, that the terrible inequalities that existed, you know, as Israel became more and more neoliberal, has the gap has begun to shrink. Maybe you should also talk about that. It's important to notice that when we talk about neoliberalism in Israel, it's really a misnomer because the neo in neoliberalism means going back to a liberal system that was before, right before the welfare state. In yeah. Israel, there was never a liberal economic system to go back to. So the transition was from a corporatist economy to a liberal economy. That hurt many of the lower classes initially, but because it opened up many, many opportunities for small entrepreneurship, many of the Mizrahim actually, after about 10 years of this liberal policy, began to do better economically. And that's why you see the gap between the Ashkenazim and the Mizrahim in terms of income really, really diminishing. And today, the share of the Mizrahim in the top 10% of income earners is equal to their share of the population, which is around between 20 and 25% in the Jewish population, between 20 and 25%. So the question is, why do many of them support populism? Because unlike most places, they are not really left behind. And it's usually the left behinds who support populism, right? So right. 
the, the number of factors. One is historical resentment against the treatment, and by now the treatment of the parents and grandparents. This is one thing. I would say a fear of the Palestinians, existential insecurity due to fear of the Palestinians. There's also economic competition with the Palestinians. It used to be in the working class, but now there's a Palestinian, a citizen of Palestinian middle class emerging also. So they compete there. So overall, and all the period of economic improvement for the Mizrahim was Netanyahu's period. So he gets credit for that. There's even an argument, I don't want to get into it right now, but there are people who say that Netanyahu has assumed some kind of a religious stature for many of the Mizrahim. A whole different story to get into right now. No, but I I do want to try to understand this a little bit better because, as you mentioned, um, Israel is different. Whereas, you know, in much of Europe and in the United States, the anger of those who no longer support what they call the liberal elite um, is focused on their anti-immigrant, you know, sort of politics that somehow immigrants are taking their place and the left behind, which is has a lot to do with deindustrialization. It's, it's a word I don't really like because there is still a lot of industry about displacement. And they've been, you know, most of this population who supports the right used to be workers and no longer are. So there, there's that. But you're saying that in Israel, it's different. And so does that mean that it comes down to if whether you're Ashkenazi or Mizrahi, that there's those divisions based on generations ago where you came from? Yes, from the treatment that the the resentment the resentment of the treatment that the parents or grandparents uh, received from the it's called the absorbing establishment which was labor and Ashkenazi is still very very powerful in the third generation. Some people even say there's hatred, there's hatred of Ashkenazim among many many of, of the Mizrahim, even of the third generation. So this is a very powerful argument. Now, immigration, of course, there is no such thing as as non-Jewish immigration to Israel, so that's not an issue. And economically, things have been getting better overall, and also for the Mizrahim, also for those people who support the populist parties. I just want to also hear about this argument for the Mizrahim that they feel much more insecurity because of the conflict with Palestinians, as well as resentment, you know, in terms of their positions in labor being taken over. So talk a little bit more about that. I don't don't think they feel more insecure. Everybody here feels insecure. But when you add that to all the other factors, it pushes them in a populist direction. So maybe you could then say, would you say that most of the Mizrahim support Likud, or do they support more these other far-right parties? Well, if we if we look at the populist bloc, which is three political parties, Likud, Shas, and this religious Zionism, they consistently get between 60 and 70 percent of the Mizrahi vote. So about two thirds. I've been saying, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work on Shas, the Mizrahi ultra-Orthodox party. And for years, I've been saying that the lowest third socioeconomically among the Mizrahim vote for Shas, the middle third vote for Likud, 
The upper third vote just like the Ashkenazim to the so-called center-left parties. And I think this is really true. The 60 to 70% vote for the populist bloc comes from the serious studies by, by an economist by the name of Momi Dahan, who studies inequality and the political effects of inequality. And that figure comes from him, but it's completely, it is completely a consonant with what I've been saying about the one-third, one-third, one-third. What about the the issue of religion? How does that divide Ashkenazi and, and Mizrahim? Well, the Ashkenazim, well, well you, you have the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox who are in the anti-liberal camp. They're not populists. There is something else. But they are, of course, in the right-wing anti-liberal camp. As far as the non-ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi, many of them think of themselves as secular, even though they're not really secular. But they are much more secular than the Mizrahim. The Mizrahim are, it used to be said that they were traditionalists. And a traditionalist is someone who goes to synagogue Friday night and drives to a soccer game on Saturday. That kind of a thing. And I think this is pretty much true. So they are more religious overall. They are more religious. And since Israeli Judaism and Jewish nationalism in Israel are one and the same. It's it's not that they're close or similar or or intertwined. It's the same. Mm -hmm. Therefore, because they are more religious, they are more nationalist. So that adds to all the other uh, factors that that we mentioned. So how do you see then, going back to the current crisis, which I guess you could call a constitutional crisis, or, you know, a wider social crisis in Israel, as well as, you know, and I'd like to hear your views on this, because you've been saying over the longest time that the so-called peace movement is dead, and that almost all of Israel has moved to the right on the issue of the Palestinian question. And, you know, this has caused within the United States and elsewhere, a lot of Jews, you know, especially in the younger generation, who are opposed to the policies of Israel and don't describe themselves as Zionists, which certainly does um, create even another element of this crisis for Israel's governance. And it does seem that, you know, Netanyahu and the government has been completely tone deaf on that or don't consider it so important anymore. Uh, So I'd like to hear your view of the anger in the streets. Is it just more of the divisions that we saw already in the elections or is it something much deeper? And where does it go from here? Well, it, it, it's hard to tell where it goes. Now, demographically, of course, the, the anti-liberal camp is growing and growing. You know, the, there is a saying that if you see an ambulance passing by, it's either a Likud voter being born or a Labour voter dying. Oh my God. So uh, demographically... I mean, there's no comparison between how many kids the ultra-Orthodox, both Ashkenazi and Mizrahi, are, are having, and the secular, which are largely Ashkenazim, have now less than two children per woman. So mm. declining, while the other element is growing fast. So the future is theirs. But right now, at, at this moment, it's hard to tell how things will, will come out because at this moment, the liberal camp still holds 
many, many powerful positions in the society, not in the political system per se, but in the society, as we saw, because it was all the, the military reservists saying they wouldn't come. And at the end, after the firing of the defense minister, a general strike called by the Istabut, the big, you know, AFL-CIO of Israel, together with the Employees Association sitting in the same room and declaring the strike. This was the first time that these employer association uh, leaders were in the building of the Istabut ever. So that's the situation right now, but it's not clear how it will turn out. So it's a, a lot of firsts for Israel in terms of the size of, of the mobilization, the anger that it represents, and as you say now, um, the way that it's brought various sectors together opposing these moves. So it's not clear how it's going to turn out, but would you speculate uh, that Netanyahu will somehow come out of this and create you know, a way to move forward? I think that's the more likely outcome. And nobody believes that anything will come out of the negotiations that, that just began after they paused the leg- legislative blitz. But when the, nothing comes out of these negotiations, first of all, we're entering a holiday period. And in the holiday period, the demonstrations will come down largely. It's hard to tell how much, but probably significantly. And after that, it's very hard to tell, but if I had to bet, I would bet that the constitutional counter-revolution will continue and Netanyahu will survive and will be able to pass whatever legislation is needed to get him out of his trial. I think that would be the, the safer bet. This is the last question because we're running out of time, Yoav. But you think that he'll be able to get a law that would change the way that the courts are appointed in Israel and it would take out the role of the parliament? Is that what you're saying? And then on the other hand, I mean, do you think that he'll pass the law that, you know, doing that is not diminishing the judiciary. It's just changing the way that they're picked. What about the other side of it where he's trying to curb the power of the judiciary? Well, the changes are not going to give uh, more power, less power to the parliament in this judge's selection committee. Exactly the opposite. It's going to give the parliament more power. But in Israel, the parliament is controlled by the executive. So mm. it's really one and the same. So it's more power to the executive and diminishing the power of the judiciary in that committee. And then they will have this nevertheless clause that whatever the Supreme Court in its new composition decides they will be able to override it with a minimal 61 members' vote. So I think, again, it's 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 very hard to tell. This, the situation is, is in flux. But if I had to bet, I would bet that they will get their way for the simple reason that they have 64 members of Knesset out of 120. And, and it's very hard to, to fight that situation. Well, as you said, you know, I've given the uh, demographic changes and the new divisions within society. I guess your outlook will be that even if a different, let's say, you know, if, if Likud is voted out of power in the next election, I guess this is the question. Could they overturn what Netanyahu's done? And or do you see this as sort of the new configuration of Israeli politics? Well, right now, the, the polls are very much in favor of the liberal camp. But that's now, and we don't have an election coming anytime soon. So by the time the election come in four, four and a half years, unless you know the government falls for some reason, which I don't see why, 
but by then, you know, so many things can happen and so many things will happen that it's very doubtful that what the polls show now has any meaning for when the elections will actually take place. Well, I will definitely will have you back as those very many things um, happen in Israel. And I want to thank you, Yoav Pellet. Can you just let the listeners know you sent me a couple of articles uh, that you wrote on the populist protest. Is, are they published and uh, available? This is supposed to come out in the annual of the Jewish Studies Center at Michigan as a result of the seminar. So this is the Mizrahim 2022 elections. But I think I sent you some stuff from Age Nationalism. It's published. It's published on the web. It's a web network. Age Standing for Humanities. And this is all on the web. So if people just Google you, it'll come up, right? Yes, because I put it on my Academia ADU also. Okay, perfect. I want to thank you then for joining us. Yoab Pellet is a professor emeritus of political science at Tel Aviv University, and you can go get his book co-authored with Harit Herman Pellet, The Religionization of Israeli Society. We've talked about it right here. It's really important to understand the divisions that exist today. Thanks so much for joining us, Yoab, today. Thank you very much for having me. And great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>